Welcome to the Eastern Approaches podcast, hosted by me, Alex Thompson. We're recording this in early February 2023, and I'm once again joined by Gevorg Virats, joining us from Tbilisi, Georgia, this time to discuss a country with which he has deep and long involvement in various ways. It's the country that everyone is discussing right now, Ukraine. Gevorg, welcome. Greetings, Alex. Thank you very much for inviting me to this discussion. This is an interesting discussion to be part of. It certainly promises to be that. And I think what you have to say will strike all our listeners as measured and reasoned, even if some people, for some reasons, don't like all that you have to say. We should get straight into Ukraine in its miserable current circumstances, Givorg. You are a regular visitor to, I think it's fair to say, large swathes of the west and centre and south of Ukraine, anywhere that isn't the battlefront in the east. You've more or less been there recently. And you have contacts all over. Before the war broke out, you had contacts, I think, as far as Donbass as well. You come there to engage in humanitarian relief, which I think you coordinate through Christian contacts and church contacts. Please tell us, just in as much vivid detail as you can, what you're encountering on a human level, infrastructure, politically, economically, religiously. Well, this is a very interesting way to put this question, Alex. Uh, And... uh... It's difficult for me to not start speaking in a political manner, as it were, when, 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 when talking about these things. But let me first concentrate on the actual situation with the people in Ukraine, because uh, I've been, as you rightly said, almost all over Ukraine, and I'm scheduled to go there again fairly soon. Uh, in a week's time-ish, something like that, a week and a half. And uh, uh, this time I'm going to go out to the east as well. Uh, My colleagues and friends certainly go to the east, and uh, uh, we have uh, a large network now in Ukraine trying to help people establish uh, what we call points of uh, power supply or energy supply. Uh, that's uh, basically installing generators around the country at different organizations that are open to the public and allowing people to come in, charge their phones, prepare their food, or do anything they need to do with electricity. Because in my opinion, in a situation like this, it is important to be able to bring as much positive relief, positive help as possible with a limited uh, availability of funds and with a limited number of people involved. So it's very important to rely on the actual people in Ukraine who uh, do that kind of work already and to be able to empower them and help them uh, in whichever way possible. So this time it is uh, installing generators, providing people with some fuel, perhaps uh, in some instances, we can't do it everywhere, but we try to do it. And by, by we, I mean myself, and then some, some like-minded people, we aren't an organization per se, we're merely people who want to make a difference, who have decided to, uh, to get involved, to act, and, and we do that. And uh, that's a very common law notion, by the way, we do not need to be an organization 
in order to operate and uh, coordinate our efforts. Now, uh, the point about the people in Ukraine and, and their suffering, uh, that has been stressed so much in the media for the wrong reasons, I suppose. Because uh, whenever we hear the official public media outlets speak about uh, some catastrophe or some uh, huge problem abroad, we tend to think, well, I certainly do, uh, that they do it because of their own reasons, their own bias. They, they need something out of it. That's the reason why they're trying to sell us this story. Now, I've been to connected to Ukraine personally for, well, ever since 2004, I believe, when, when I first visited in Ukraine as a student. And then, then I went back uh, almost every year, and in some years it was multiple times in a year. And for me, the situation in Ukraine is very much personal because the impetus of the people of Ukraine in their action, day-to-day uh, -day life, is such that they're very uh, active, very proactive. They're, uh, they have the spirit of entrepreneurship. Uh, they're independent-minded. And uh, they're really willing to create a society that is broad and deep. Broad in the sense that they would include different kinds of people within the scope of what, what they understand to be Ukrainian. And deep in the sense that they're open to different traditions of thought and they're willing to integrate that. Uh, Nowadays, within the current making of Ukraine, you see people that come from uh, a very different background, uh, such as uh, Polish or Hungarian or, or Russian or Jewish. These people, they are included in modern-day Ukrainianism. And it is very easy to be yourself in Ukraine if you want to be yourself in order to make a positive impact in the world. Now, this is a little bit philosophical, but I think this is, this is very important in terms of trying to understand how Ukraine is different and what's the fight that it is fighting. Because we must remember that Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union. And before that, it was a part of the Russian Empire. And throughout this whole period of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, all kinds of freedom were absolutely suppressed in Ukraine. And the Soviet Union was massive. It was huge. It had so many different republics, uh, semi-independent, such as the 15 main republics, or quasi-independent, the ones that were members of these 15 republics, but still had, had a status of a republic, of an autonomous republic. Now, all these places, they were part of, a, of, of the same entity, the Soviet Union. But these entities, each one of them was very different 
within the Soviet Union. Some of these countries, some of these places, they they were very backward-looking. And I don't mean this pejoratively. I mean this looking uh, back into their history, looking back into their roots and trying to uh, reestablish something from the past in their in their modern day. Georgia, where I come from, was one of those countries. And uh, uh, Georgia, of course, declared its independence when the Soviet Union broke up, but Georgia declared that it reinstated its independence. And Georgia was very keen on trying to uh, revitalize the ancient Georgian culture and, and make it modern and bring it to, uh, to, to the new century. But the way it was done, you remember that very well, Alex, yourself, it wasn't always very straightforward. Well, the, the, the gentlest form it took was people swearing and cussing all the ethnic minorities, not just the Russians, but also the autochthonous minorities like the Ossetians, the Abkhazians, the Turks. I remember that very well. And it ranged up to uh, a bloody war with the Abkhaz and with the Ossetians. I know it's an extremely sensitive matter, but the then defence minister, Akarashvili, has admitted to interviewers since that there was aggression from the Georgian side, and he looked into his soul and said in that interview, didn't he, that we hadn't a mature and forward-looking understanding of polyethnic statehood, multi-confessional statehood. Well, Ukraine was drastically different to this from the very beginning. Ukraine was a state that did not have an identity that was uh, petrified and, and, and unshakable and unmovable. It was very, very dynamic. Ukraine had a big um, minority, it was still a minority, but it was very large, the Russians or the Russian-speaking Ukrainians. It was both. It was the both the Russian people that were ethnically Russian and the Ukrainians that were Russified and spoke Russian. The former of these, the, the Russians with actual Russian surnames and ancestry in, uh, in Russia, ethnically, would be largely in the Donbass and in the Crimea, wouldn't they? And the Russified or Surzhik-speaking, that's mixed-language-speaking Ukrainians, is everything east of the river up to near the Donbass. Vaguely, yes. There's also Odessa, there's also Kherson, but, but, but vaguely, you're right. But, but there's, there's another big minority in Ukraine, and that's the Western Ukrainians. They're not the majority in the country, they're also a minority, but they're the ones that were speaking Ukrainian from the very beginning, even in the times of the Soviet Union. They spoke Ukrainian as their first language, and uh, their, their church tradition is different to the rest of Ukraine because especially in the region of Galicia or Halichana, as it's called in Ukrainian, they're Greek Catholic. They're not Eastern Orthodox like almost everyone else in Ukraine. They're Greek Catholic. That means they're, they're in communion with the Vatican, but they have their own unaccompanied Slavic liturgy or Greek liturgy. And this comes, of course, because they were under Polish and Austrian Habsburg rule during the centuries, never under Russian rule. Uh, that's right. What's, what's important about them is that uh, they feel um, 
largely. Now, I don't want to generalize too much here, but it is very fair to say that, that Ukrainian nationalism uh, is, uh, is rooted in that tradition more than anything else. So any, any fair-minded Ukrainian intellectual from central Ukraine, from the Kiev area, will admit that and will say tongue-in-cheek, maybe less so during the tensions of the war, but until the war broke out, they would say, those guys in the far west are like a different nation. We know there are people, but they speak differently, they have different attitudes, they're more pugnacious than we are. Yes. In between these two poles, there is a large number of Ukrainians that didn't previously feel any nationalistic sentiments to to that extent, to the extent of Western Ukraine, but they were never as Russified as the as the Eastern Ukrainians and the Russians in Eastern Ukraine. So they were something in between. They've had their identity. Their identity has to do with the Cossack tradition rather than Kievan uh, Rus. Polish and Austro-Hungarian uh, tradition, uh, they're, they're different in, in, in their worldview, and they are the majority of the people in Ukraine. So we have three main big groups of people, and uh, two of those groups were initially sort of opposite to each other. They were the ones that had the tension. They, they were in opposition to each other. The East leaned and tended towards Russia, and the West tended towards Europe, and, and they were tearing Ukraine apart, and they were trying to influence the majority of the people, the uh, Cossack Ukrainians, uh, uh, to, to join their cause and to overtake Ukraine. So basically the elections, all of the elections in Ukraine, they were about this. Is it is it is the country as a whole going to go towards the West, or is the country as a whole going to go towards the East? And the difficulty there was that uh, the politicians in the West and in the East, but especially in the East, they try to capitalize on this by uh, persuading people into uh, their cause being the only viable way uh, for Ukraine to an extent that Ukraine was torn apart. Uh, the tensions within the country were very high. And uh, I remember, especially in the early 20s and mid-2000s, um, mid uh, not 20s, but uh, but 2000s, uh, this was a really serious matter in Ukraine. This, were, this was being discussed. Everybody talked about East and West. There were songs about this. In yes, you, you and I used to sing them together because we both started visiting Ukraine around that time, 04, 05. And there was a frisson of excitement about it, wasn't there? At least for an, an incomer who knew he could get on the plane out again. But we could see it was far from humorous for the, the locals. True. Now, what happened after after that? socially in Ukraine was very important. They have understood in Ukraine that it is a fact of reality that they have different thinking people within the country. So they started working out a way to accommodate everyone. And they have become very broad in this. To an extent, 
But even the naturalized Ukrainians, people who came from overseas and became Ukrainians by citizenship, they were so included in the new fabric of the country that the identity started to shift from being polarized to, to being egalitarian and free within, egalitarian in the sense of having equal rights regardless of where you come from. Hence, hence why Ukraine was uh, by far the former Soviet Republic with the largest representation of religious minorities in parliament and several different religious minorities as well. I know historically, because it's such a broad territory and close to Europe proper, uh, it has had far more Protestants and Catholics in it than other former Soviet republics. But even so, it's striking how many members of parliament and even an acting prime minister, president, sorry, at one point have been Protestants. Uh, you wouldn't find that in neighbouring countries. Likewise, well-known news readers and members of parliament with uh, Afghan origin, uh, unthinkable in most other former Soviet countries. Any origin, Alex. Uh, one of their heroes uh, in Ukraine was the Georgian journalist who wrote articles about the previous government and then was murdered brutally. Georgi Gongadze. In my, yes. my first trip to the CIA, that was the big talk of the moment. Was President Leonid Kuchma personally responsible for, quote, feeding him to the dogs? Well, and, and the Ukrainians, they recognized that Gongadze was a Georgian. But... In the same way, they understand that he is a, is a Ukrainian hero, is he belongs to the narrative of what's Ukraine. And, and Ukraine started to develop in a very interesting, in a very interesting direction. No one else in the whole of the Soviet Union has done that, just the Ukrainians. Even, even the Baltic republics uh, have got this mono-ethnic obsession, really, to be frank, haven't they? Latvia and Estonia, above all, it's impossible to be absorbed as a Russian. Especially the Baltic republics, because the Baltic republics have never offered their Russian populations anything that would have positively involved them in their statehood. Never. It was like the Latvians and the Estonians, and especially the Latvians, but also the Estonians, they were saying, we are going to form a state and you are going to join whichever state we form. And if you do not like it, leave the country. And you won't gain citizenship until, unless you can answer in this difficult language that you weren't brought up speaking um, questions like, what are the flowers on the national crest, which we just invented last week? And if you failed that test, you were a stateless person. The OSCE in Vienna has a high commissioner on national minorities who wrote report after report on the plight of the Russians in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Um, and strangely, ignored. But, and this might bring our discussion in a more controversial direction, Georg, that same high commissioner on national minorities was writing to the OSCE uh, through those years, that various ethnic minorities, especially after the 2014 revolution, the Maidan, were facing increased persecution in the same ways. Do not speak your language in a, in a shop. Do not uh, uh, show your films in public. Do not educate your children in your native language. Not just the Russians, 
but the Hungarians, the Poles, the Ruthenians were finding the same, the Bulgarians in Crimea, the Tatars. Okay, there's something to be understood about this, but before we get there, I'll say something else about the situation in general. Now, uh, what the Lithuanians and the Latvians and the Estonians have done with their countries and their situation was very different to what the Ukrainians did. Okay, the Ukrainians, they started a new society that included uh, most people, included almost everyone, and I only say almost because there were radical people always that were discontent with, with what was going on, but the vast majority uh, with, uh, within the society of Ukraine was increasingly happy with what was going on. So that's very um, different to what happened even in Georgia, in Azerbaijan, especially in Azerbaijan. I mean, if you it's incomparable. It's it's absolutely impossible to compare. But let's now focus on the problems that the minorities in Ukraine have uh, have uh, encountered uh, throughout this period of say 25, 27 years of, of Ukraine's existence. The attitude among the Russian community was that we are okay with the Ukrainian language becoming increasingly more and more important as long as we are able to speak Russian and teach in Russian and, and be, be who we are. And that was the modus vivendi within Ukraine. The Russian speakers, they could speak their language. The Russian schools were on. Nobody closed them down. Uh, they were, they were, and they are still some of the, there are still some of the Russian schools. I mean, many Russian schools in, uh, in, in Ukraine, but some of them are still active, even though they were uh, separatist or supporting, uh, supporting uh, the invasion. But what happened? in Ukraine uh, is that ever since 2012, and then especially 2013, the Russian special services have launched a campaign against the Ukrainian statehood. That's when the Russian television started speaking about how Ukraine is a failed state, how it's never going to make it anywhere, how it's not going to survive, and how Russia is responsible for the Russian historic lands, Russian people, the Russian language, and so forth. That's when Yanukovych was in power. Because before that, uh, the, when, when the first Maidan happened, and eventually Viktor Yushchenko was uh, elected to be the president, we all remember what, what the Russians have done to Yushchenko. His pockmarked uh, face. Yes, he was poisoned with dioxin. And in the four years that President Yushchenko was Ukraine's president, He's had 634 operations on him, magical operations, 634. Now, think of this. This is what the Russians did. And I don't know if anyone bore any responsibility for that. 
but they were they were saying it pretty clearly back then that we're not joking we're going to take you out if you want to integrate with the west and to distance yourself from us and from from our power basically we're going to take you out they've done that to yushinko and whatever they've done afterwards with with uh, the with the support that they poured into Yanukovych's bloc, Viktor Yanukovych, who won the elections, who've turned down the Ukrainian people's decision to integrate with the with the European structures. Now, I'm not judging on that and saying, you know, the Ukrainians were doing the right thing and the Russians were evil because they were they're they're propagating the wrong thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the Ukrainians had decided on a certain thing, and that was the condition under which Yanukovych was elected, that, uh, that, that Ukraine joins the treaty with the European Union and the integration moves on that way. The EU association agreement, which we here in the Netherlands voted down because this was the only EU member state where a popular referendum uh, was achieved. What happened... What happened afterwards is that uh, President Yanukovych decided to usurp his power and decided to go violent on the people in Ukraine, beating up the students that protested against his decision of abandoning Euro integration. And he suddenly decided that Ukraine is not going to uh, open up for, for Europe, is not going to tighten its connections with different European states, and it's uh, going to join the, join the Russian-led uh, bloc, the Euro-Asian uh, Union, instead. And that's not what the Ukrainian people wanted. That's not why they have voted Yanukovych into power. They were expecting liberalism from Yanukovych. They were expecting good relations uh, with Russia. They were expecting calming the Russians down, but still going the European direction. And, and, and suddenly it turned out that Yanukovych was, uh, was not going to, to fulfill that. So there was a popular revolt against uh, against what was going on in the country. Now, was that backed up by the West? Most certainly. Oh, yes, I remember Guy, Ho Guy Verhofstadt waving his arms like some tyrant on the Maidan, but it's hard to deny that it was a popular uprising. And indeed, even the most... Uh, Skeptical of the UK column writers uh, regarding your position, Ian Davis, when covering this Maidan era in a long piece uh, asking whether Ukraine has a Nazi problem, uh, does say that there was a general melee during that uprising. The question you, you and he would disagree on is the role, as the revolution went on, because it lasted three or four months, the role of the right sector, Pravi sector, this bundle of fascistoid organizations, uh, did they commandeer and subvert this general popular uprising? And in the end, was it they who initiated the nasty shootouts around the Hotel Ukraina? Very controversial point with all kinds of uh, claims about it. What's your understanding? Well, uh, in order to understand what, what happened to these people, uh, it is important to just look at the uh, fate 
of of the leaders of uh, this this or grouping of organizations. For for example, there there was a person, one of the main propagators of the private sector, the uh, the right sector, uh, Sashko Bili. Sashko Bili was a thug, someone who fought in in Chechnya, someone who uh, created a lot of problems in Ukraine, and, and uh, the, he's the one that led the most extreme group within within the Ukrainian opposition. Uh, and and the uh, and the Russians have been waving him as a flag of the Ukrainian Nazism, Nazi agenda, or whatever. He died. He was murdered, Sashkobili. Who did this? Nobody knows. I mean, I don't know, certainly. But the rumors go that Arsen Avakov may have something to do with that. And at the time, uh, he was governor of Kharkiv, wasn't he? And had his own uh, private army roaming the streets of that province. His private army, yes, was uh, was the one that actually maintained Kharkiv uh, within, within Ukraine. Because, and that's just slightly after these uh, actions in the Maidan period in Ukraine. What happened was that, of course, the Russian stooges in Crimea, and and then uh, they're known by name, these people, and in, in, in the Donbass uh, region, they've, in, have they incited a revolution that was backed up by the Russian, and then and, and the revolution, I mean the Russian revolution against the Ukrainian uh, state. And uh, they initiated a process of detaching Crimea and the east of Ukraine from Ukraine on the grounds of trying to protect and trying to save the Russian speakers in Ukraine. Now, my position, and I want to tell our listeners that I'm very convinced of this position. My position is that the Russian rhetoric and the real actions of the Russians, they're two very, very different things. They will say things that the people listening to them will want to hear. But if you want to really know how they protect the Russian people, you have to look at the city of Mariupol. Just Google Mariupol. In, and, and see the pictures, see what happened to that city and the population, and that was a large city in Ukraine, uh, to what happened, what's the condition under which the population lives, what's, uh, what's going on in that area, see the pictures for yourself. That's how the Russians protect their fellow Russian speakers. Not to the same extent Per se, but to a similar degree, uh, the same thing is going on in the East nowadays. Uh, so nobody should be fooled by any means. They're not after the Russian language. They're after taking over Ukraine. They're after subverting Ukraine, and they're after making sure that Ukraine is never going to be able to exist as an independent state, let alone have a say in any matter without their consent. That's the position that the Russians are trying to impose on the Ukrainians. And now coming back to the point of my personal experience in Ukraine, I've stayed in the Ukrainian cities, I've talked to the Ukrainian people, and I've lived 
in the conditions that they live in without electricity because the Russians have come and have bombed all of the electricity supply points around Odessa. I was there in Odessa when the bombing happened. And uh, I was in Kiev, I was in Irpin, I was in Bucha. I was in all of those areas where the Russians have left their imprint. And that imprint is of destruction, of massive uh, hatred, fire, rapes, and violence. And that's the main trait. Wherever you see the Russian influence, wherever you see the Russians have reached, there you find rape, there you find violence, and there you find threatening people with, 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 with their lives. Because unlike uh, in Ukraine, unlike the Ukrainian part of Ukraine or the free part of Ukraine, in the Russian part, you're not entitled to opinions on any matter. Now, if even in Russia, you've posted something on Facebook against the current government, you can get to jail. In the east of Ukraine, for doing the same thing, you could be killed. And nobody will ask even a question, or why, 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 why did that happen? Nobody would even uh, stop or pause for a second to, to question this. Because that's the tyr tyranny, that's the mentality that the Russians are projecting around them, and that's what they're bringing to the people. That's their liberation. That's their Pax Russica that they're trying to establish around them. So I hear many people in the West, and people that are educated, people that are uh, morally developed, I'd say, I say, well, it's, it's a war between two countries. Why, why should we get involved at all? Let, let them sort it out in between themselves. But the last time when this was, uh, this was the mainstream idea, why should we get involved? It led to a world war, and then, and then they had to get involved. They were dragged into this conflict. And this is, is, is very similar because the evil, it does not stop at national borders of some country. The Russians, they have invaded Ukraine, but, but they're not going to be satisfied with just Ukraine. Because if you listen to the Russian media, the Russian television, they're, they're talking about the Baltic states all the time. All the time they're talking about how, how Estonia Latvia and Lithuania shouldn't exist. They're talking about Finland, that Finland really was a part of Russia, and shouldn't, shouldn't they reconsider Finland's existence? Things like that. Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, these are non-entities for the Russians. And, and is, is, is it going to stop there? You think, well, the last time they've stopped in the middle of Berlin. And the only reason that they stopped there, that on the other side, there was a force big enough to stop them. Now, are we going to say today that the Ukrainian people, they're fighting this bloody war with uh, tens and now hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, victims and casualties in the war only because there's uh, some, some, some crazy... Uh, Ukrainians 
uh, hated the Russians and they were Nazis. Is, is that a believable thing at all? Something else. My background, my ethnic background, is such that I'm dark-featured. I've got a dark black big black beard, and, and I'm, I'm dark-featured. I'm from, from Caucasus. And never once in my life I've had a negative comment about that towards me in Ukraine. Nobody ever, and I've spent more time in Ukraine than in any other country outside Georgia in my life. I've never once heard anyone say or act in a way that I would feel threatened or uneasy uh, in terms of my appearance or ethnic background or culture, anything like that. I couldn't say the same about some other countries, especially Russia because I used to visit Russia as well back in the day. Now, I no longer go there, but back in the day, I did, did go to Russia, and I've heard all about how non-Russians are not nearly even people, in, in their opinions. And I don't want to repeat all the terms they're using very, very casually to, uh, to describe other people. So who's the Nazi here? Some of the most radical pro-Ukrainian, inverted commas, speakers in Ukraine were financed by the Russians, such as, for instance, uh, the party called Svoboda, led by Oleh Yakubok. And with its youth wing, which we've reported on a lot, C-14, led by Yevhen Karas, who has been shooting his mouth off so freely that I am beginning to have my doubts as to whether he is some kind of puppet. It is known today that these people, well, I don't know about Karas, I haven't uh, seen any documents on him, but I'm, I'm talking about Yahni Bok because he's the leader of the party, and it is, it is known that this person and that party, they acted under the Russian instructions. They had nothing to do with the Ukrainian statehood and the Ukrainian view of how things should be. Nothing. And of course, it is easy for the Russians because half, well, almost half of the country in Ukraine is Russian-speaking. So they'll be able to find people in Ukraine that be working for them. Ukraine is a very corrupt country, horribly so. And that's something that it inherited from the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was terribly corrupt, and Ukraine remained corrupt after the Soviet Union broke down. But you could you could say it was a victim of its own success in Soviet terms because it was where all the know-how, the heavy industry, and the uh, ethnic confluence was. Uh, it was uh, the Soviet Union's Detroit, if you like, or Great Lakes region equivalent. So uh, all the money and all the, the pork barrels and the dirty dealing came there. Well, there are many places in the Soviet Union where all the dirty dealing came. But Ukraine was particularly, particularly interesting because it had something to offer. There were things to, uh, there's a word in Ukrainian, uh, a slang word that they use, the word deriban, that means like uh, stealing, uh, robbing your own uh, factory, robbing your own office, whatever, something like that. That's what was going on. People... Uh, we call that robbing, asset stripping. Uh, that's a very polite term of, uh, of the same thing. Uh, people 
were able to see that Ukraine is rich. It's got a lot uh, to be dealt with, as it were, uh, as was Russia, uh, unlike, unlike some of the other places in the Soviet Union. So yes, all of these oligarchs that uh, established themselves in Ukraine with, with, with different backing, and of course, none of them could have ever sprung up without the FSB and, and, and KGB before that. When, when you're dealing with a person that has millions and millions of dollars and billions of dollars, uh, you should be sure that that person is, uh, can't, he, he can't be a billionaire or even a millionaire on his own without a connection to the FSB in, in Russia and, uh, and in the KGB, if it's the Soviet Union times. It's just something that does not happen. You have to be allowed to have that money. You have to be allowed to make this business. Because what happened to the other people who tried the same business? They were shot, they were killed, they were thrown out of the country. That's what was going on. There was no fair trade, there was no fair law enforcement, none of that. So this is precisely the reason why Ukraine was so corrupt, because it was convenient that way for everyone. Uh, half of the world used Ukraine for money laundering, for all sorts of uh, transactions with uh, arms. The Western the services absolutely did. And you know, this is where your view and mine converge, I think, and even the views of those who might question what you have to say within the UK column commentary scene, people like Vanessa Beely and Ian Davis would heartily agree uh, with you. Uh, that the Ukraine and Poland, to some extent, has been a free-for-all, uh, an entrepot for all the wheeling and dealing and smuggling of people, ideas, uh, illicit goods, children, organs, the whole lot. But the point that I'm making isn't about Ukraine being a model state or being a very good place for all users, as it were. There were some things that went on very well there were, there were some developments that I like, and they're still going on, some of them. And there were horrible things, and most of those horrible things, they stem from the times of the Soviet Union. That's where they stem from. Not all, though, Gevorg, because, sorry to interrupt, but I do. it comes to mind now, a clip from within the last year, during the war itself, there's that uh, national TV station uh, with the number 24 in its title, uh, which had, I think, again, an Afghan origin newscaster. I think the station's owned by the mayor of Lviv, who is a well-known national, hard nationalist. And admittedly, the newscaster's friend had been killed in battle the previous day or that night. But uh, through his emotions and his tears, he said, with some forethought and with a graphic on screen showing Eichmann, which had clearly been coordinated, so it wasn't all spontaneous. There was a setup in the studio for it. He said... I'm going to show a picture of Eichmann, and now I declare that all Russians are targets, including their children. Now, he ethnically, and in terms of his generation, you can't pin that on the Soviet legacy, can you? Uh, no, I can't pin that on the Soviet legacy, and that's, uh, that's why I said most things, not all things. You have seen tons of footage of what you are quite certain are Russian atrocities since the war began a year ago, but I have not seen at least not from reliable sources. And more to the point, you have heard eyewitness testimony on your humanitarian relief visits. 
Alex, uh, I understand what you're saying, but because uh, because we're not uh, trying to compete here by any means, and because we're not even in a discussion when we're trying to persuade each other of an opinion, uh, I'm very interested in what you're saying. However, I'm going to say, uh, I make a statement about Ukraine in general. Ukraine does have Nazis. I'm very sure that there are Nazis in Ukraine. As there yes, are in Russia and in Georgia. Yes, there are Nazis in every other country in the world. Yes, including Israel, for instance. There's there's no shortage of Nazis in Israel. But but there's something that's very important to say. Well, what else is there apart from the Nazis? Is there any legitimate right for anyone to call Ukraine a, a Nazi state? Does it qualify for any anything of the sort? And the answer to that is an overwhelming no. I think, Ukraine. to be fair, though, the, the, the argument is not that Ukraine's a Nazi state, unless we're listening to Kremlin TV. It's The argument is, as Ian Davis has couched it when writing for us, that Ukraine has a Nazi problem. More specifically, that from his 2019 election onwards, the current president was having a metaphorical, if not literal, gun held to his head. If you'll recall, he was told that if he implemented any part of the Minsk Accords, he would be dangling from a tree on Khreshchatik. And that was well before the war began. So that's obviously not a majority of the people, nor of the members of the Verkhovna Rada, nor of the government ministries. But it may be a blocking minority that has, to use that English idiom, the whip hand over the uh, Kiev authorities. That has nothing to do with Nazism. The Minsk Accords and, and uh, the problem of implementing them in Ukraine, that has nothing to do with the issue of Nazism whatsoever. And I would like to ask Ian Davis about Nazism in Russia. And the reason uh, why I'm asking about this is not because I'm trying to deny there's not Nazism in Ukraine or a Nazi problem in Ukraine, whichever way anyone would want to uh, look at it. Okay, by all means, if you see a problem, go and help solve it. But because the Russians are the ones who've invaded Ukraine, and because the Russians are the ones that are ter taking territory of Ukraine and implementing their law there, my question is, well, does Russia have a na Nazi problem? Well, how about Russian ideology, the current ideology that they have? How about the culture that they're building in Russia? Is that something that we would like to spread around the world? And Does again, that... we see convergence of views, because as it happens among the people who write for us regularly, Ian Davis is now most keen uh, on looking at uh, techno-fascism in Russia, uh, the integration of global ID, uh, of, of digital ID, of biometrics, uh, the severe sentences people get for expressing the wrong opinions online. He's, t he's not a Russian speaker, but uh, through others like Riley Wagerman, he is, uh, who do live in, in Russia and uh, whose material he picks up, he is noticing this. So again, our positions are not that far apart. Much of what you've said through the whole of this podcast so far does not exclude that you accept that the West is doing the same things to Russia. It's, but if I, may, if I hope I'm being fair here in a nutshell, your position is, yes, they are doing all these things to Ukraine, and what the Russians are doing is even worse. Oh, that's right. But the difference of my position between the Western, uh, compared to the Western position or the Russian position, is that in all this, my position is pro-Ukrainian. I actually care about Ukraine. 
And see, this is the difference. Because what the West is thinking is this. Okay, we're the West. Ukraine is out there on our fringes somewhere. We don't even know exactly where it is. There's a war going on. Let's keep it there. Let, let's make sure you know we don't hear about Ukraine. We don't hear about the refugees. We don't hear, hear about what's going on. And uh, the other part is saying that, okay, well, we've got to, to take in as many people as possible, help Ukraine, send them the money, and so forth. None of these uh, streams of thinking actually reflect what Ukraine is trying to achieve as, as a nation, as a people. Because the people of Ukraine, what they want is freedom. They don't necessarily want to be a, a part of Europe. They would like that, and the reason why they would like that is because they think it would guarantee their security. But uh, they're in very deep debt to the wickedest banks and financial institutions in the West because of this war, aren't they? And they have been more digitally enslaved than anyone, perhaps even more than the Russians, through this DIA app, uh, an acronym for the, the Ukrainian phrase for the state and me, through which Ukrainians do everything. You could argue that starts from the people's will, couldn't you? Because as we've discussed already, they are an entrepreneurial people. They love uh, having everything uh, available on their smartphone, any, any dealings with authorities or business. Uh, but it, it is a bit of a trap. Look, Alex, uh, when uh, someone's cutting off your leg, you're not thinking about your, uh, your side being pinched. You know, the problem with Ukraine right now is the fact that Ukraine may cease existing altogether tomorrow. That's the problem. And the reason that the Ukrainian people are fighting this war, they're begging for help, they're asking for anything they can get in order to survive, is because they know they're threatened. Now, you're talking about things that are a general problem in the modern day. Uh, digitalization, etc. These things, they happen, but they should be dealt with at the appropriate time. And I'm sure that when Ukraine is at peace, more or less, it will be able to reflect on what's going on and think, okay, they're trying to digitalize and these other people are trying to do something else and so forth. And there will be different kinds of reaction to, to what's going on. But the problem is that right now they're being exterminated as a country, as a state, not necessarily as ethnic uh, group always, uh, even though ethnically the Russians deny the existence of the Ukrainian people, of the Ukrainian, Ukrainian ethnicity. The Russian government, Kremlin, has repeatedly said that the Ukrainians are the same people as the Russians, which is false. The Ukrainian the language, they say, does not exist. Well, I'll speak the Ukrainian language to them and let me see how they understand me. Because the Ukrainian language is very rich, very deep, very different to the Russian language. There are similarities, definitely. They're close linguistically by all means, but they're not the same language at all. The Russians are denying that. These people, they want their identity back. They want their right to be themselves. Well, how is that wrong? We should bring Brella Rus into this briefly as well, because those who say that there's a single Eastern Slavic people that came from Rus talk about the three branches, Vilika Rusia, uh, Mala Rusia, which became Ukraine, and White Russia, Bielorussia. And of course, you're uh, familiar with that country too. 
What's the best outcome you can envisage right now for Belarus if there is any kind of settlement between Ukraine and Russia? A lot will depend on what this settlement is going to be. Now, I really hope that the Ukrainians will be able to defeat Russia because defeating Russia would mean that the Belarusian, Belarusian people will, will get an opportunity of, of becoming an entity of their own as opposed to what they are now, a part of the uh, United Union state. Union state, whatever, well, yes, with, with Russia. Uh, the people in Belarus, they're not the same, and they're not uh, even similar to the Ukrainian people. Their national ethos is different. Even their uh, national anthem says that we, are, we Belarusians are peaceful people. This is, their, uh, this is the first line of their national anthem. They do strike me as much more contemplative people, much more concerned to be modest than the Ukrainians or the Russians. The Ukrainian people have a tradition of offering active participation in world affairs. They have always historically been very active. Even when they were suppressed by foreign powers, they still had organizations within the nation that were active representatives of the Ukrainian consciousness and the Ukrainian people, which isn't the same uh, with the Belarusians. There is a whole different concept in the minds of Belarusians because the Belarusians, they were never their own entity. They either belonged to the great duchy of Lithuania and the Belarusian na nationalists today, they say that we're not really, we're not Belarusians, we're re really Litvins, meaning Lithuanians, but uh, kind of an extended understanding of what, what, what the Lithuanian means. Because the Grand Duchy of Lithuania is, is a country, or was a country, which emerged after Kievan Rus was destroyed by the invaders from the east, the Horde. The, the Lithuanians, they were able to extend their territories on behalf of Kievan Rus. Right down to Crimea. Almost, almost to Crimea, or right down to, to modern-day Odessa. And, uh, of course, the people that lived there were the people of Rus, the Ukrainians uh, predominantly, but not exclusively. The Lithuanian people, they were, they were a minority within their great state. The duchy was great, grand, as it was called, but the actual language of that grand duchy of Lithuania was, was, was the Slavic language, the language that was the predecessor of the Ukrainian language and the Belarusian language, the language of course, because they were the majority of the population. Now, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania was then subsequently joined uh, into, into the uh, Union with, with the Polish Kingdom, and, and furthermore, they became a, a single entity when, when Poland annexed the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So the people of Belarus, what happened to them? They've seen the Lithuanians come, they've seen the Poles come, they've, and they've developed an identity of, well, we're just local people. Whoever comes in is able to be the head, then the Russians came. They are not as active, they're not as proactive in terms of their worldview. There is an expression 
in the Belarusian language. The expression for that is tutatia. Tutatia, locals, that's what it means. We simply sit here when, while all the invaders come in and leave and, and, and fight each other. We sit here and wait and, and, and do uh, whatever our daily duties are. The Ukrainians aren't like this. The Ukrainians, if, if they, they, they want to make a point, they make sure that the point is made by all means, regardless of what's going on around them. Quite exuberant people in war and peace. Yes, they're uh, they're they're warm, uh, warm blooded, as it were. That's uh, that's what the Belarusians call them. Garecha uh, Kroth, hot, hot blooded. The Ukrainian people, if their uh, cause succeeds and Ukraine is able to retain an independent state that's not dependent on Russia, that's free from the influence of KGB and, and its metastasis uh, within the uh, fabrics of the Ukrainian society. If the Ukrainian people are able to produce an identity which will include all, all of the Ukrainian people of, of different ethnicities in a way that they live comfortably and, 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 and enjoy that and want to develop that, which they have almost achieved just, just recently, just before the war started, that is going to trigger Belarus wanting to be a lot more independent, Moldova certainly being being a lot freer and possibly joining Romania in the future, maybe the Republic of Kaliningrad uh, breaking away from Russia, and, and uh, God knows what might happen in the Caucasus if that succeeds. Well, I wanted to ask you about the, the Caucasus because I wanted to end on your prognosis for the spring. You expect a busy four months for your personally and in affairs in the region. But as a bridge to that, since you mentioned the Caucasus, I know international law is not your particular specialism, but you're by no means ignorant in it. And you've talked about Ukrainian statehood, its territorial integrity and sovereignty being valid, which has always been Western diplomacy's main pushing uh, talking point vector for policy in the region. You're very keen on that in another post-Soviet context in the Caucasus, which is the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, your own ethnicity, the Armenians there, precisely because they declared the wish of their autonomous republic within Azerbaijan uh, to remain an entity separate from Azerbaijan before the date of legal breakup of the Soviet Union, before Russia became the legal successor state to the USSR. Yet, the same is true, is it not, of the people of the Autonomous Republic of the Crimea within the then Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. The Crimean Autonomous SSR uh, voted, I think whether it was at parliamentary level rather than referendum level because the Soviets didn't have a referenda, voted at parliamentary or assembly level to become an entity separate from the Ukrainian SSR before the USSR broke up. So even if we are to concede that there's no legal grounds internationally for uh, the four new uh, oblasts of Russia, as Russia claims to be part of Russia, isn't Crimea a case apart? Can you not say that even with you supporting Ukrainian statehood and survival, they may have to jettison Crimea? Alex, what I'm going to say to this is, is the following. I, by all means, support everyone's right for self-determination. 
every single groups, including the Russians. In Crimea, I believe that the people have their right to determine themselves in any way they possibly would like to do that. My problem is when the foreign invader comes in and tries to establish its rule and its law over, over the people abroad. And this is what happened in Crimea. If the people of Crimea wanted their uh, self-determination, nothing hindered their legal process within the frame of work of Ukraine. They could have raised that issue within Ukraine, and they could have done that within, within the framework, within the existing framework of Ukraine. Could, could they, though? Because the, the, the Kuchma administration unilaterally rescinded the autonomous status of Crimea in, in the 1990s. No, Crimea was autonomous. Uh, was autonomous republic. Uh, nothing happened to its an autonomous state. Uh, the discussions and the negotiations between Ukraine and Russia over the fate of Crimea, they were uh, they were very extensive, and the consensus was that Ukrainian territorial integrity is guaranteed by the Budapest Memorandum and by by the bilateral agreements, by the Astana Accords that they have all signed. So Crimea was recognized as a part of Ukraine. It was free and able to determine itself and uh, become, become whichever thing it, it would like to become. But the process, the due process under which that would happen wouldn't be a short one. It wouldn't be something like, okay, let us now all vote and say, uh, let, let's let's cease being in, in, in the country of Ukraine, because it's a national dialogue. Like in the UK, you've recent, well, not very recently, but within, within our memory, thankfully, you've had this uh, vote in Scotland about Scottish independence. And uh, the majority of the Scottish people, they voted to remain in Britain. That was their vote. Now they're saying they want to vote again, which they might in the future. We don't know. But they voted and, and they made their minds clear to, for everyone. Everyone was able to see that the majority of these Scottish people uh, want to remain in the United Kingdom. Uh, now, there was a whole process leading up to that referendum. It didn't happen overnight. There's a bilateral uh, discussion that needs to precede such a referendum. Uh, it is important that it's peaceful. It is important that people try to find a solution before breaking everything apart. It is and, true, and, and we, we are mocking the SNP government's position now precisely for this reason, that they are seeking a unilateral path to a referendum which is not within the powers of the Holyrood government to declare. Yes, because nationhood is something much deeper and much greater than merely a desire in the moment. That's what a referendum is. 
is it uh, is it possible that people would vote every time uh, the the shift in the population happens? Let's say there's there's a big media preaching something that the people believed, and 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 and, and then what are they going to uh, incite a referendum? And then and then do it the next day when the when 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 the opinion shifts again. This is not a joke. This is this is a serious process of establishing statehood. And in order for that to happen, there's there's got to be a discussion. There's got to be a process of trying to understand understand the position of the other side. No one is allowed for that in Ukraine and Crimea. Well, the Russians haven't allowed for that because one, they've intervened in Ukraine. Two, they've intervened in Crimea. And I'm not talking about today, I'm not talking about last year, I'm talking about throughout the 30 years and the years before. There was never a time when Ukraine was at peace and able to sort its matters itself. There was never such a time in the whole of Ukraine's history. And now, of course, it's very easy to approach this from a legalistic point of view and say, okay, aren't the uh, Crimeans entitled to be separate? Well, yes, they are, but there's a due process uh, for that. I I would like to bring some other examples here as well. Well, how about Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh? Because there, in those circumstances, what's happening is an outright genocide. How many times have the Ukrainians attacked anyone in, in, in Crimea and discriminated against anyone in Crimea based on their, uh, their, their culture, their heritage, and whatnot? In Nagorno-Karabakh, there isn't a single place where the Armenians have lived that have continued to live there after 2020 if, uh, in, in the territories which are under Azerbaijani domination today. There, in in Nagorno-Karabakh, there is a genocide going on against Nagorno-Karabakh, against the people, the Armenian people of Nagorno-Karabakh, and nobody discusses seriously their right to self-governance. All of the solutions that are uh, are brought in are uh, semi-solutions. They say, well, let us talk about autonomy in Azerbaijan. But what kind of autonomy? Who else has autonomy in Azerbaijan? What happened to the autonomy in Nakhichevan area? Now, those questions nobody really discusses because, of course, there's oil, there's gas in Azerbaijan, and it uh, brainwashes the people in power that have to uh, do uh, like all of their decision-making in, in, in this regard. Now, maybe it is the Russian oil and the Russian uh, gas that brainwashes the other people that today say, okay, we've got to be friends with Russia. No, I say, my point is, we have to recognize evil where it's due. And when you encounter evil, despite all of the nice uh, propaganda slogans that the RT have devised in order to poison the people in the West, you've got to see what is really going on what these people are really doing, and what causes are they really trying to suppress, whom they're trying to benefit. And I wasn't like 
ever in my life someone who's anti-Russian. I speak Russian. I write in Russian. I appreciate parts of the Russian culture that aren't imperialistic. I appreciate some of the Russian music. And uh, that is something that's a part of myself, just like everything else. But there's a problem, and I'm not going to downplay that problem. Russia today is a state that's oppressive, that's full of hatred and full of imperialism and desire to destroy people's identities and people's integrity, people's livelihood, and they're not offering anything other than what they're supposedly fighting in the West. Every single plague in the West, the Russians have copied and the Russians have multiplied. And they're saying that they're fighting. They're, they're talking about homosexualism in the West and how that is a horrible thing they're fighting. Their parliament, the Russian parliament, is full of homosexuals, the very homosexuals that are talking uh, against, uh, speaking against the homosexuals in, in Europe. Europe is portrayed as, 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 as uh, pro-LGBT, and Russia is portrayed or portrays itself as very conservative. But, but it isn't conservative. They have all of the same issues in terms of their identity as there are in Europe. Europeans uh, have migrants. The Russians, they, they also have migrants. Uh, the way people deal with each other, all of these things, they're very similar. It's, it's power play. It's the Russians wanting, and, and Russians are underdeveloped. Russia is underdeveloped because of their intrinsic corruption, because of their moral depravity, because morally they're not able to justify anything they've done in the world in the last hundred years. Anything. None of their invasions, none of their fights, nothing. They've even had a pact with Hitler. They've, they've made this a big deal now. We won in the Second World War. We're the great saviors of the world, saviors of Nazism. We fight Nazism. Well, how about your god, Stalin, sit, sitting down with Hitler and signing a document uh, dividing Europe? How about that? More, the, the, the Pact of Molotov and Ribbentrop, that's how it's known in Russia. And then suddenly, when Hitler has turned the tables against the Russians, they've become, they've become great proponents of, of humanity. That doesn't work that way. When you're morally depraved, you can't stand up and fight for morals. Communism is oppressive, totalitarian, and human-hating. Their minds and their mentality in Russia, it is communist. I'm not a proponent of a radical and weird capitalism. I believe in justice and mercy. I'm a Christian. I believe that we have to be free. We've got to be able to be entrepreneurs. We've got to be able to do business. But we also need to have mercy and compassion and love and be with the people that are weak, be with the people that are in pain, and, and stand with them and sit with them and eat with them and sleep, sleep with them and wake with them. That we've got to do as human beings. But, but I'm not buying into any of those ideologies coming from either the East or the, the very trendy West. There are some Western thoughts, 
that are quite uh, quite important and I appreciate them, but but not uh, not the neo-Marxist type uh, way of thinking, not the um, political left kind of thing that we have today. So the problem is there, and we cannot fight the problem with its replica. We've got to find a solution. And my solution is to help the people that are in distress, to help the people that are in need, and to promote freedom and to support those who fight for freedom. That's my position. And I'm going to live it regardless of who things want. And, and I think, Alex, you, you're very aware of that because we've been, we've been uh, uh, friends for so many years now. Absolutely, Georg. And you put me in mind there of the coronation, which we're about to witness, because it's very few and far between that you hear people talk about mercy in politics. You just mentioned it, and it's something that the king is going to have to promise to do on his coronation day, to cause mercy to be exercised in all his judgments. That's perhaps a more promising note to end on. I know people will have disagreed with or been startled by some of what you've argued, but you have given us, besides passion, reasons for what you believe. Uh, I don't doubt your credentials for saying what you're saying and concluding what you've concluded. And I hope it will not be long until we turn our attention in another Eastern Approaches podcast with you to the question of Iran, Turkey, and the current state of the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict. Georg Virats, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you.